deals in money, we are constantly seeking deals in money as real estate investors. And I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate. And follow-up boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals, or you can follow up with your investors. And you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners, then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The follow-up boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Followup Boss offers experts seven days a week. You can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial twice the length of the normal trial for a limited time. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Get enough deal flow that you can comfortably walk away from bad deals. If you're not confident in your ability to get the next deal or the next deal is going to come, you're going to make things work that don't work. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Tim Krause. Tim is joining us from Tacoma, Washington. He's the manager of Done With Land, which is a direct mail buyer and seller of land. Tim's portfolio consists of 30 acres of oyster fields, and he has bought and sold over 50 properties in the last two years. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. And how are you today? Doing well, Ash. Glad to be here. It's our pleasure. Tim, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah. So going back a little ways, uh, I started in real estate actually back in 07. My parents flipped from 05 to 08. I got my real estate license back then. Even before then, I even worked as a handyman on my grandfather's apartment complexes way back when. And in 08, when everything blew apart and my parents lost everything, I swore off real estate and said I would never go back to real estate. And so I did a bunch of different jobs and then I eventually started a video production company, did that video production company for three years, went around the world twice and went around the country several times for a lot of real estate professionals and then ran across land investing and then kind of tiptoed my way back in. My first deal I bought was 1800 bucks and sold it for 3000 and then kind of went from there. And now I have my land company. I'm also coming up with a brand that's going to go after commercial deals. And also I have a small investment company that I'm getting to fund all of those other ventures. All right. You've given me enough material to talk for an hour, but the most important question I have, you own 30 acres of oyster fields. Yes. I got to hear that story. So 2020, I was sending out letters to a guy and we were negotiating on a piece of land. He went back and said, hey, you know, I want to sell you my land, but we couldn't agree on a price. And then he was an older gentleman in his 80s. 
And I found out that he owned a different piece of land too. And so we were negotiating about these two different pieces of land. And then he said, hey, what if I just sell you all the rest of the land that I have? And a big chunk of that was oyster fields. And I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do with these things. No idea at all. And then he offered me pretty much a deal that I couldn't refuse. He offered me a seller financing zero with zero down and like a five-year balloon. And he offered that. I didn't even ask for it, but he offered that. I don't get it. So you got free land, essentially, with no money down. Yes. And it was an operating oyster field? It wasn't operating at the time, but we got it up to operating. So we didn't have to do a whole lot, but just get approval from the Department of Health. And you manage that, or do you just outsource that? So I lease it to a oyster farmer who actually has a whole team, and they go out there and they harvest, and then they'll reseed. That's my first piece of cash flowing, if you would. Real estate is roughly a half a million oysters. About a quarter to half of them are gone now, and we'll keep on harvesting them. Do you get free oysters? I bet I could. I don't eat a whole lot of oysters, so I'm sure I could there. But yeah, we went out and we evaluated the next 20-acre piece a little bit ago, and also oyster fields and oyster maps are very strange. I might actually own a little bit more than 30 acres. I'm not sure. Literally the map, most title companies, only one title company in that whole county could do the transaction because we tried to do it with someone else and they said, sorry, we don't have any maps for oyster fields. So you have to go to this title company over here and they have the actual map. So I got to contact them again and confirm where the last little piece is. I could have give or take 10 acres more. It's hard to tell. All right. That sounds like a deep dive for another show. So after 08, you got jaded on real estate. What were some of your odd jobs that you took on? Oh, I did everything. I had close to 11 jobs over 11 years. I worked as a civilian mechanic on striker vehicles on base. I worked in a computer lab as a technician. I was an EMT in an ambulance for three years. I worked at a lumber mill. I was a security guard, window washer, carpet cleaner. You didn't know what you wanted to do when you grew up. No, I had no idea. Okay. What the hell were you doing? Just trying to find your way? You know, it's funny. As I was getting towards the end of all those jobs, I was like, man, why is so much of life figuring out what I don't want to do? Like, like so much of it. I didn't get a job in this, but I also paid for my way to go to the fire academy in 2010. So I saved up about six grand, which is so dumb. I had a nice paying job. My wife had a job. My grandfather had a nine unit apartment building and we were living in 170 square foot, one of the units. And I was being the manager for the building. So I fixed up the the apartment building because I had some handyman experience. So I like redid the bathroom, put in a wall, put in a back door, et cetera. And then I was managing it. We were living rent-free in 2010. And I was making, as a mechanic, 50,000 bucks a year. And my wife was making some money. And I was like, we can't afford anything. We can't buy anything. Because like literally this was like my parents were losing their houses and the beach house and et cetera. But yeah, I went to the fire academy and that was fun. But again, not really for me. And Tim, what is your wife saying when you change jobs on the average of once a year? Yeah, so it became a joke at the end of the year with how many different W-2s I would have. So that kind of became the joke amongst my friends. And she's been a stay-at-home mom ever since we, a few months into having our first kid. So as long as I've been able to support her and where we're at, she has been happy. But yeah, I definitely jump around or have jumped around a lot, for sure. Awesome. It sounds like she's been supportive of the decisions that you've made. And now I want to know, how did you get to land flipping? So I was doing a video job for a commercial property investor. He was buying a RV park in Midland, Texas. So we were actually flying down to Texas together. He's from Seattle and we were driving out to from El Paso to Midland. And we were talking about different styles of real estate. 
And he was super on board for a commercial. And I was like, eh, kind of scary. But we both run the same camp that Fix and Flips are just really not our wheelhouse. They're, they're really kind of scary because I saw my parents, you know, lose everything in their Fix and Flip. So with that, I then came home and started watching videos on mobile home parks. And I found a guy on mobile home parks. And then you find someone's name, you search them on YouTube, you watch everything they do. And I did that. And for one of the ones, he was interviewed by a guy who does land investing. And this one land investing guy was very, very proud of their land investing. And I was like, what the heck is land investing? This sounds like the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life. And because I also filmed a real estate conference, one of the biggest ones in the Pacific Northwest for three years in a row. So we filmed 24 hours of content and I watched all of it. So I've consumed a stupid amount of real estate education. And from that, I was like, what is land investing? And then I just started watching a whole bunch of videos on that. There's about four or five people in the land investing space, really. And yeah, found that little world. And I was able to start very slowly and rebuild my confidence kind of little by little after watching everything fall apart. Because also my wife, we were married in 2009. So right after the crash, her dad was a mortgage broker. So when we got married, my family didn't have anything. Her family didn't have anything. We just watched all of it fall apart there. And I was early 20s at the time. So definitely had some PTSD, if you would, on a very, very light PTSD of the real estate space. I can imagine. You must have been a legit videographer if someone's flying you halfway across the country to shoot a commercial. Or I was very affordable. Um, <laughs> I think I did a good job. I enjoyed video, but it's just, it just wasn't where long-term where I wanted to be. Also, it's really hard to scale. There's other things too, but... Yeah, I got flown to Iceland for a wedding once and also to Bosnia to shoot a small Bosnian-American indie film. Wow. All right. So you're exposed to land via YouTube videos. What's your next step? I watched probably 200 YouTube videos on it. And then I saw what I needed to do and I got a mailer put together and I sent it off to Coconina County, Arizona, which is south of Grand Canyon. And pretty much I sent my first mailer January 2020. So literally mail hits, I start talking to people and then COVID hits and I get super upset. I got my real estate license in 07 and then 08 happened. And then now I'm starting up my land thing in 2020 and now COVID's happening. But I had a resolve to not quit this time to just like just push through, say, screw it. I'm just going to go for it. So I bought my first property for 1800 bucks, a little three acre property out there and off a dirt road that was off another dirt road that was just in the middle of nowhere. And then I sold it on, I think, Zillow for sale by owner for like $3,000. And actually last week, I saw they put a little shed thing on it. And they're now selling that little house again on the market because it still has me as a, the owner history in Zillow. All right. Hold on. You live in Tacoma, Washington. Yes. But your first land purchase was in Arizona. Why? The price point of it was good. And also... The price point was really kind of the main part. I searched on Zillow by certain price points to see where certain properties sold. That was my very first one. Then a lot of them were in the county just to the west of me, Mason County, where I actually went to in person and did my own photos. So relatively, it was the price point. Also, desert squares in the, in the land space are sort of where things start. There's not many things complicated to them. There's not a whole lot of different soil issues. There could be some flood zone issues, but nothing too intense. How did you know what price to buy that piece of property for? That comes into how we price things in land, and land is challenging to price. It's one of the reasons why it can be very profitable because it's hard to price. So now I have a tool with four different ways that you price a piece of land. Back then, I looked at what I think they were selling for, and then kind of threw out a number here. 
and then kind of hope for the best. So I also have more calculators now that I used to calculate different things. My systems have gotten a lot better since then. I'm a big systems guy. All right. So your first land deal was a win, even though you were winging it. Yeah. Basically. How has that process evolved over the last, it's only been how many years? Two. Two years. Yeah. So what's your process look like today? So for now, I have two full-time employees, Americans, one part-time employee, a full-time guy in the Philippines, and about three or four other Filipinos that help out with different pieces of the process. We have about a 75-point checklist that we go through for the buying and selling process. I have about 120 training videos in my company. We're buying anywhere from three to five properties a month and selling three to five properties a month. Coming on about a half million dollars, or I will by the end of this month, in private lending that I'm able to use and keep on flipping. I own 10 properties now that I'm working on selling. So the process has gotten better with systems. My first year was just like me kind of learning a whole bunch of different stuff. Then I actually put a bunch of systems in place. And now we have all different little checklists of what we're supposed to do and assign to different people. And I had a meeting with my team an hour ago and we went over some things of where stuff is at. All right. My mind's blown. Retract that question. Tell me about your second land deal. (laughs) I want to come along with you on this evolution to how you got to where you are. That's Mm -hmm. incredible. So let's dive into that. So you're feeling pretty good. You had a win. How long did it take from purchase to sale? on the first property? Probably two months. This was right in the middle of the start of COVID. So it was definitely a different time. Okay. So if you can do that during COVID, you've got to be feeling pretty confident. Your first deal was a win. Mm -hmm. This real estate bug is off your shoulders. What'd you do next? I mailed Mason County, which is a county to the West of me. There's a small development where I like the price point. So I mailed there and actually got several responses back from that one. I bought my second property for 2000 bucks. I sold it for five or six, but I priced it a little bit too low because I got an offer within the first four hours from a real estate agent who locked up and bought it. So I felt like I left something on the table with that one. And then I did a few more in that one little HOA, a few properties that I got that had septic issues, perk issues. And actually one of them I got for free, very Um, small. Okay, hold on. So you bought not land in the middle of nowhere. You bought land in an HOA in a subdivision? Yeah. For how much? This is, again, a really rural spot of Mason County, but for 2000 bucks was the first one from, it was actually from a nurse who lived close to me and she just was done with the land. And she received one of your mailers? Yes. Got it. Okay. And then now you're feeling even better. You're mm-hmm. onto something. So what was your third deal? Now we're getting kind of where it gets blurry here a little bit because I just, I, I end up spending a lot of time in, in the county to the west of me, Mason County. And I did, I think my next... 15 deals in that county, just kind of mailing that area and just kind of growing and hitting it. One big one was that I bought some properties from a medical company that was in Hawaii. A Hawaiian medical company owned a lot of land because the landowner who lived there, all land has a huge history. The landowner who lived there got cancer, went into remission, then was so excited, flew to Hawaii because he was feeling good. Cancer came back super hard. So he actually leveraged his land in Washington to pay for his medical bills in Hawaii. He ended up not living, but this medical company has all this land. So I bought two pieces of land from them for 5,000 bucks a piece, five acres. And turns out when I went to go see the land, all I could see was a ravine. And so I was like, these are, these are kind of garbage. So I'll just shoot it at 5,000, 1,000 price per acre. 
And then when I go up there again, I'm talking to the neighbor and the neighbor's like, how much can I sell them for? I'm like, I don't know, 15, 10, 15, somewhere in there. And then he's like, well, you know about the building lots, right? I'm like, I have another building site. So he showed me an overgrown dirt road that went down to two building sites. And one of them had a view. So I sold one of them for 28 and one of them for 39. That was a good one. Awesome. So how do you find the deals? How do you find the history of the land? So with the deals, I just mail in general, everyone who has a piece of land that meets my criteria. So I make up some some criteria. I have a macro that I made that scrapes Redfin to make my own land database because no one cares about land. So I made a little tool that does that for me. Then I basically mail to the zip codes that match my criteria. And then I send them off an offer of what would work for me. Most people say, heck no. But a few of them say yes. And then we just start talking to them about the piece of land. We find out a little bit of the history if we can in the conversation. I now have a checklist of six questions that are kind of the minimum required answering by my acquisitions person. Because 90% of the time, I don't talk to buyers or sellers anymore. I'm more of a behind the scenes guy. So I have an acquisitions person who talks to people and a disposition person who talks to people. And I'm actually starting to use a lot more agents in my disposition as well. Can you share the gist of those questions? What's important to find out on the initial call? Yeah. So what's important to find out is obviously big one is access because this could be a property that doesn't have any access or it hasn't been used in a long time. Any sort of utilities, proximity to utilities. Also asking about have they built on the property before? Have they ever tried to build on the property before? What issues does it have? We also ask about if there's any sort of hazardous waste issues on the property, which might come in later in the story here, why I ask that question now. That is kind of the big part. We just kind of try to ask the story, what's going on with the property? Because land can be rough. There are pieces of land out there that you can get bit pretty good. But then again, you know, it's part of the high risk, high reward type thing. But also I've been doing it for a while now to where I've seen a few things of just a few and been bitten by a few things. So I've learned a little bit. We'll get back to the show with a first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. What's holding you back from getting into apartment building deals? Is it knowledge, fear, inability to take action, lack of support? If it's any of these things, then I suggest you consider Deal Maker Mentoring with Michael Blanc. Michael's program is the most effective program to help you syndicate your first apartment building deal. During Deal Maker Mentoring, you'll work directly with one of Michael's experienced mentors who have successfully replaced their income with apartment buildings. They've already done what you want to do, which is become financially free. So in addition to providing their own syndication experience, they've been trained in Michael's unique Deal Maker Blueprint designed to help you do your first deal and become financially free just like them in the next one to three years. To find out more, text the word Joe to 66866. I know Michael's going to get you to where you'd like to be again. Text the word Joe to 66866. Do it right now while it's fresh on your mind, and let's get you started with your own syndication business. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive 
Investor Guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. What have you been bitten by? And I want to hear the hazardous waste story. I've only had one property so far that I've lost money on and my lenders lost nothing. I just wrote a check and paid off my lenders and took care of everyone. So, cause I use private money for 95% of my deals, if not more, but with this one, I had a builder and an agent check this one out and there was a paved road and then there was a sewer manhole. We opened up the manhole and we looked and the sewer went in front of the property. So, okay. So the property has access to sewer done deal. Turns out that one property within all of the city block around then was the one property that could not get sewer unless you did this whole extra thing that was like $30,000. So it was just a really brutal thing. And that's why also I use agents, even though this time an agent didn't catch it, because every area has so many individual things. If you're in Thurston County, the county to the south of me, gophers are an endangered species. Wow. And the gophers are very, very well protected. Now, if you ask any landowner in Thurston County, they will say unofficially off the record, make the gophers go away by any means necessary. But then if you go to the county to the southwest, east or north of it, they don't give a crap about gophers. Just that one county, but that'll bite you. So there's so many little things. And you want me to go to the hazardous waste story? Uh, yeah, in the for sure. Yeah. You're in the middle of it now? Oh, yeah. It's not oh, over. Let's, yeah, let's hear it. It's not over. So... I bought a property in Nevada County, California, 34 acres, beautiful property, beautiful area, just south of Empire Mine State Park. And I had a photographer go there. Everything looked good. I didn't use an agent because that was back when I was feeling like I didn't need to use agents. Honestly, I was a little bit prideful. I was kind of not valuing some of their expertise. So basically... I bought this property and then I find out afterwards because I I wanted to potentially get it split. I knew I was going to try and split it, but if I couldn't split it, I could sell it as a single piece and still do just fine. So I waited till after I bought it. And then I just went into finding out more about getting it split because I really wanted to make sure that I bought it because it was a good deal. So I bought it then and the land surveyor was like, I'm sure you know that this property has a lot of problems. The main one being hazardous waste. I'm like, I did not know about this problem at all. I got title insurance. It wasn't in the title report. It wasn't in the recorder's office. The report on the hazardous waste was in the environmental protection office, which is now one of the six offices that we call and ask specific questions on. We've changed a few things in our due diligence. We asked the seller six questions. We call up six different departments and ask each one of them questions about the property because every county department is a silo. Zoning can say you're perfect, but then city planning could say hell no, but they could be totally different and they're in the same area. So bought the property. We're trying to sell it now, kind of. We're trying to see where it's at. I called an agent finally a week and a half ago. The property on the southern portion of the property has three mine shafts. So we might be able to fence off the three mine shafts. And then if the engineer, because the engineer has to go out there and then kind of give us an envelope that we can build in of good soil. If we can get 20 acres of good soil, I could still potentially double my money. Depends on how much the other costs are. So there's a glimmer of hope, just a tiny one. Um, But yeah, so that situation with that, I've already told my private lender, I'm paying him off no matter what. We've already had this conversation and he's informed of what's going on. So we're all on the same page with that one. Interesting. So Tim, can you take us through the evolution of how you started to systemize? Your first deal, you obviously just winged Mm -hmm. it. Now you've got these incredible systems in place. 
and a team that you've hired as well. So can you take us through building all of that? Yeah. So my first employee, I hired a little bit earlier than I was planning on, but I hired her as my acquisitions person right before then in January of 2021. So a year and a little bit ago, I had zero checklists, zero training videos, zero automation. It was basically me and I was using a one Phillips service from Landmasters. Then I started putting in checklists because I joined a little land mastermind that we meet every month or twice a month. And I saw the people had checklists and I'm like, that's a really smart idea because I kept on forgetting stupid things. And I was like, I'm so dumb. I asked them this question this time, but not this question this time, you know, to a different property. I'm like, why am I doing this, repeating the same mistakes? So I started building on my checklist system. Then I hired my first employee. And I was like, I don't need any training videos, even though I was doing a video production company. And I was like, I don't need any training videos. I'm good. So then after the fourth, my employee, she's great. She's very good on the phone. She's not that good technology-wise, which is why now she doesn't do as much technology as she used to. But after the fourth time of showing her how to make a Craigslist ad, I was like, this is not going to work. I've got to figure out something here. So I then started making videos. I had all my checklist items. Then I sat down and I just made a ton of videos. And it's always changing, always developing. We use Trello. We used to have one Trello board from start to finish. Now that's divided up into three different Trello boards with different people. And the cards jump from one thing to the next. But it's all to try to think of for my team, how can I make it the easiest for them to remember the information? Because it's foolish to think that they're going to remember everything that I put into place because they have lives, they have things they're doing, they're talking to a bunch of other people. So all of my checklist items have a two-digit number. All my videos have a two-digit number that's corresponded to that checklist item. And then they also have an additional two-digit number that's corresponded to the checklist number. And then another two-digit number that's corresponded to the number of videos that are in that particular checklist item. So if you're in checklist number two, doing item number 20, and there are two videos for that, you can click a button and you can easily see where that is. All right. How are you the same guy that had 10 jobs in 10 years? This sounds incredible. Good for you. Systemizing everything. What gives you a competitive advantage over other land flippers? Two things really, I think for that, I think I work a lot in my letter to try and make it sound more compelling. So there's a book that I just read uh, from Postcard Mania about postcard marketing. Also the book, $100 million offers by Alex Harmozy. And I try to put myself in the actual seller's position. Her name is Sally. She's 77 years old. She has a property that her kids don't want. And she gets five to 10 letters a year. And she gets my letter. What's going to make my letter stand out as being different. I have a website. I have a Facebook. My Facebook, I don't do a whole lot on because most of my clientele is older than that. I have a website. I have an email that's not an at Gmail or at AOL. It's my company. You can look me up there. I have Google reviews. You can look them up there. I even have reviews that I let people see on my letters now. And then when you call in, you don't call into a call center. You call into my acquisitions person who's an American and she's great. And she'll talk to you on the phone and it just kind of helps build up that legitimacy. Also, it's common in the land space and I'm not against it. It's just something we don't do. We don't do a lot of double closings or assignments, even though it lowers risk. I think it is not as good of a service to the actual seller. So we buy the properties cash and then we sell them cash or or on payments. Get into more of that later. So that's kind of a few of the things we do is we actually, what would be the best to serve Sally and also to serve us too, because we can't just pay market price because then we wouldn't have any business on the back end. So I try to think from the seller's perspective, what would help them 
And then what can I make it work together? What's so compelling about your letter? I think for the people that we want, the legitimate details matter. So we do what's called blind offers. So all of our offers have a price in there. And it's going to sound really dumb, but I record all my competitors' letters. I own land. So when I get letters now, I have a folder of all of their letters on Google Drive that I'm able to then look at and see what's going on. But stupid stuff. Our font size matches. Everything is consistent. Our spacing matches. It doesn't look janky. Because again, Sally, who's 77 and who watches probably Fox News or CNN, she hears about two things when she hears commercials. She hears about medical scams and people getting scammed out of money. So how do I make myself not look like someone who's going to scam people out of money? Because I don't. So also we mentioned in our letter, hey, if you want a reference, we work with escrow companies who are licensed in the state that you're in. We'll give you a reference. Just call us up. And we have people ask us. Now, they rarely actually ever contact the escrow company because I talked to the escrow officers. But we'll say, hey, we work with Susie from First American. Or we work from Roxanne with Corinthian Title. Or we work for so-and-so with so-and-so. And here's their phone number. Here's their email. Please feel free. Give them a call. I like that. You're a good-looking guy. Do you put a picture of you on there as well? I do not put a picture of me on there. I have a picture of me on my website, but thank you for that. Have you ever tried that? The hard part is, is that the print company we use and the bulk printer that we use, them printing fine details and high contrast printing doesn't look that good or doesn't come out that well. So I've not tried that personally yet. There's so many things to test. I've done probably six or seven different split tests, if not more. Now they're relatively small, five or 10,000 units aside. But yeah, so I've not tested that one yet. Tim, I've got two questions for you. The easier one is why not do what every other wholesaler does and test drive the land, right? So, hey, here's an offer and I've got 30 days, 60 days to try to find a buyer for this land. And you have no risk. Yeah, so I've done a few of those. There's a few tough things. One is that I'm able to close faster. So doing it just cash. And sometimes if a property is a bit sketchy, we'll do what's called a blind ad. We'll kind of put up, hey, five acres in this area coming on the market for roughly this price. We'll just put up some basic photos. So that's also part of it. Also, it seems the only assignments I've ever done I literally wrote out in the contract that I'm going to try to assign this property. How it's done a lot of the times in the land space, the seller doesn't know. And for me, I don't want to have a business where I do that. Because, hey, what happens if the seller finds out? Well, you know, it's a contract and this and this. Here's the thing. I basically have a guarantee in my contract. My land contract has a clause in there that says the seller can cancel at any time, which you would never have in an assignment contract. Never, ever, ever. But again, trying to make Sally feel more comfortable with signing from someone that she just got a letter from out of the mail that she has no idea who this person is. What are things that are going to make her feel more comfortable? So that's kind of why I do that. Yes, it is technically more risk. Absolutely. But it just means you have to be better at due diligence. So that's my answer to that. Incredible. And speaking about due diligence, how do you make blind offers on land that you probably haven't even seen? There's many different ways to do that. There's some services that do that, that can do approximations of that. I basically just do the assessed value times a multiple. So I train my brother who will do this for me now, but he goes to every zip code and he looks at three or four pieces of land that are within our data within that zip code and then looks at the sold prices versus the assessed value. 
and let's say that the sold is for $100,000 and then this property is assessed for 50. Then he would take that assessed value and times it times two for 100. And then he would go down a little bit longer, look at a different one, and then see if it is about two times assessed value. Because essentially we're trying to figure out how far off on an average is the assessor from the market value. It's not perfect by any means whatsoever, but it's kind of like a shotgun and then there's a sniper approach. We're hoping this is like a machine gun, kind of a little bit in the middle. It takes days to price a mailer. Is it perfect? No. Do we still have to adjust prices? Oh yeah, we do. And we do that. You know, we're really nice about it. Most of the time we're like, hey, we usually say, hey, Bob, sorry, we can't buy your property for $30,000. I really don't want to offend you with a lower price. And then we shut up. And then they always say, well, what's the lower price? And then we give them $10,000. And about a third of the time, the people actually say yes. So yeah, I'm buying two now that I renegotiated price down. One of them from 60 to 35 and one of them from 42 to 35. What's your average margin on a piece of land percentage wise? Percentage wise, I usually get pretty close to doubling my money. Pretty close, which is pretty common in the land space. I know in most spaces it's not. I just have a big property now that I'm moving on that I'm not doubling my money, but still getting a large amount of money. Because a percent in land, you could buy for 500 and sell for 2000 all day, but you're not making a whole lot of money. I'm aiming for anywhere from fifteen dollars to $25,000 per deal is kind of my goal. And I've been able to do that quite well as far as in, on my deals. Tim, how does somebody get involved in land investing and land flipping? So there are courses that are out there. Here's the thing. You don't need a course. I watched a bunch of YouTube videos. There's enough free content out there. You can just do it yourself. You can just watch the videos and jump on in and learn and bump your head and all that type of stuff. There's some good paid courses out there. Land Academy has a paid course. Ari Tipster has a paid course. I'm actually in the process of making a course with a friend of mine because he saw my stuff and he's like, Tim, you really got to make a course. And I was like, all right, well, if you do it, I just want to talk. And I can't have it take up a lot of my time because doing courses is not my goal to do to make money. It's land. And I said, my course, if you want to sign up for the email list is flipping.land. Tim, I think you've got a lot of wheels turning out there in our audience. I'm going to ask you, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Best ever real estate investing advice, you have to be willing to walk away from a lot of deals. Get enough deal flow that you can comfortably walk away from bad deals. If you're not confident in your ability to get the next deal or the next deal is going to come, you're going to make things work that don't work. Great advice. Yeah. Tim, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's go for it. All right, Tim, what is the best ever book you recently read? That'd be $100 million offers by Alex Hermosi. And what was your big takeaway from that? He has a really good value equation in there and how to communicate actual value to someone on the other end of your offer. Tim, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I do post some videos to the group as well. Also with the course thing, potentially giving back with that. Right now, I don't do a whole lot of volunteering. I used to do a lot more of that. So that's kind of my answer to that one. And Tim, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? You can give me an email at info at investments crafted i-n-v-e-s-t-m-e-n-t-s crafted.com you can also check out some of my stuff there tim i want to thank you so much for being on the show 10 different jobs in 10 different years getting an oyster farm and putting all these incredible systems in place putting a team in place to turning and burning deal after deal over the last two years congratulations on your success and thank you thank you ash 
Awesome. Best ever listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share this podcast with anyone you think can benefit from it. Please also follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.